From Washington, D.C., across the nation and around the world, stand by for an overview of the hottest topics and people being discussed on air, online, at the coffee shop and across the backyard fence, powered by the research of Talkers magazine, The National Conversation. It's time for the Michael Harrison Wrap. Here's Michael Harrison. Thank you, Victoria Jones. Monday, February 28th through Friday, March 4th, 2022. It was a week in which an already troubled world inched closer to the unthinkable. We're about to embark upon a powerful hour of Black Belt Talk Radio, during which your tolerance for hearing different but legitimate points of view will be tested. We've got lefties, righties, and fence-sitters. Please don't get angry. Just listen closely, and while doing so, maintain a degree of educated skepticism regardless of whether or not you agree. We'll be joined by Kevin Casey at the Talkers Communication Center in Springfield, Massachusetts with the top 10 topics of the week. We've lured the legendary radio talk show host Ron Owens of KGO San Francisco fame out of retirement to get his comments on the war in Europe. You'll hear a deep dive exclusive interview with the iconic crime-fighting and multi-Emmy award-winning reporter Chris Hansen on the continuing danger posed to our children and young women by sexual predators on the internet. Harry Hurley, the morning mayor of Atlantic City, New Jersey, at our affiliate WPG, will join us in conversation about President Biden's State of the Union address. And Richard Neer of WFAN in New York City will get us up to speed on the Major League Baseball lockout. An impressive array of influential yappers from across the country with microphones, smartphones, and digital recording devices sharing their observations and the feelings of their target constituents with whom they do a daily dance of affirmation in a fragmented, noisy world where we try to avoid the modern-day syndrome of seeking victory at the expense of truth. Welcome to the Michael Harrison Rap, heard coast-to-coast and around the world on great radio stations across the U.S. and the U.K. The past week's hottest political and social topics discussed in the American talk media. Information's gathered from a variety of sources, including data tracked by the broadcasting trade publication Talkers Magazine, of which I'm editor and publisher. Okay, here we go. Joining us now is Kevin Casey, executive editor of Talkers Magazine. Kevin, give us a rundown of the 10 most talked about stories on talk shows in America this past week. Thank you, Michael. At number 10 this week, the baseball labor dispute. The owners and players in Major League Baseball haven't been able to settle their financial differences, resulting in the games scheduled for the Cactus and Grapefruit League spring training exhibitions being postponed. And casting doubt about when the actual season will be able to begin. At number nine, social media and big tech issues. A coalition of state attorneys general from a number of states, including California, Florida, Massachusetts and Kentucky is investigating TikTok for its potential negative effect on young people's mental and physical health. Plus, there's increasingly heightened concern over the dangers presented to young people by sexual predators lurking on the Internet. At number eight, a tie between immigration reform and climate change. The Department of Homeland Security will allow Ukrainians who are in the United States to remain in the country under a form of humanitarian relief. On the climate front, the UN Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change issued a report warning if human-caused global warming isn't limited to just another couple tenths of a degree, an Earth now struck regularly by deadly heat 
fires, floods, and drought in future decades will degrade in 127 ways, with some being potentially irreversible. At number seven, a tie between race relations and voting rights. During his State of the Union address, President Biden also came out in support of two pieces of legislation stalled in the Senate to counter red state voter restrictions. He reiterated his support for the all-but-dead John Lewis Voting Rights Act and the Freedom to Vote Act. Ironically, many activists on the left complained that his support wasn't expressed strongly enough. At number six, crime, violence, and guns. President Biden brought gun control back into the national conversation during his speech with a condemnation of a weapons. Meantime, conservatives have grabbed the opportunity to utilize the brave resistance of the Ukrainian civilian population as an example of the importance of protecting the rights of civilians to be armed, stating, we are the militia referring to the wording of the Second Amendment. At number five, the January 6 investigation tied with electoral politics. According to the committee's court filing this week, Donald Trump and attorney John Eastman were part of a quote, criminal conspiracy, end quote, to overturn the 2020 presidential election, stating that the former president continued to claim the election was fraudulently stolen after being presented with obvious evidence that this was not the case. Meantime, Trump's sizable influence over the 2022 midterm and 2024 presidential elections looms large, but not complete, as the GOP comes to grips with determining its leadership and focus going forward. At number four, COVID-19. Although the stats are heading in a favorable direction and mandates are easy, all across the nation, the pandemic is far from over. Yes, masks are beginning to come off. But during the State of the Union address, the president emphasized his support of continuing vaccinations and the development of new ones to combat the likely emergence of more variants. He also restated his support of keeping schools and businesses open. At number three, the economy. The economy remains plagued by what is being called runaway inflation, supply chain slowdowns, and labor force shortages. And the war in Europe is only serving to exacerbate these issues. Of course, the war is also inflicting Russia with a devastating set of unanticipated economic crises as the seemingly potent sanctions opposed by the U.S. and an alliance of nations around the world are plunging the Russian people, Putin, and ticked-off oligarchs into a world of pain. At number two, the State of the Union Address. The president received favorable reviews for his handling of the Ukrainian crisis. But significantly mixed reviews for just about everything else presented in the speech, including the economy, voting rights, gun control, and he got blowback from not only Republicans, but members of his own party on the extreme left. And at number one, the Russia-Ukraine crisis. The big fear is the escalation of this war to becoming a nuclear confrontation between Russia and NATO, and that, of course, includes the United States. As we're putting the final touches on this program on Friday morning, the world holds its breath as the Russians have shelled Ukraine's largest nuclear power plant, potentially unleashing a devastating environmental disaster upon the entire globe. The gravity of this situation cannot be overstated. Thank you, Kevin Casey from Talkers Magazine. You're plugged into the Michael Harrison rap. The Russian invasion of its neighbor and former Soviet satellite Ukraine has remained at the top of the Talkers chart for the second week in a row. I coaxed one of the greatest radio talk show hosts of all time out of retirement to chat with me about it. The legendary Ron Owens of KGO San Francisco fame. What are some of your thoughts observing this tragedy? Well, I usually come and try and be funny in the beginning, and I always find something to be funny about when it's tragedy. 
And that's the best quote I've heard so far is that what we're seeing is, well, a situation where you've got Shecky Green becoming Winston Churchill. That's the way it seems with uh, Zelensky. I'm so absolutely amazed at this man and thrilled with uh, that opportunity. But if nothing else, it has exposed Russia. I think, I think it's really, it's become fairly obvious that somewhere along the line, Putin, quote, he hasn't lost it, people say, has he lost it or is he sick? No, he knows damn well what he's doing. But the thing about Putin is that, like many people who are in a position where they're running things and it's all their world, uh, he is surrounded by yes people. So when presented with this is what they're going to do and they're going to invade, they're going to take back, you know, take back Ukraine, which is absurd in the way they're, they're going about it. Nobody was there to stand up and say, well, Mr. Premier, no, that's not the way it can be done. So he just gets the idea and gets supported by people who reinforce it. And consequently, he's going through. Now he's got to extricate himself. And that's the real problem, because either he's not going to turn around and admit in any way that he's done something wrong. And if he comes back, if he goes to his own people with anything other than the, quote, annexation of Ukraine, uh, that's not going to help him. I think he's he's pretty much signed his own death warrant. But until then, sadly, there are going to be a lot of people who are also on that death list. You know, you think, yeah, that that is that is the true tragedy of it, all the loss of life and uh, beautiful uh, buildings and uh, possessions and uh, a way of life. Uh, just just it seems so dark ages and um, it seems so uh, last century, the idea of sending in tanks and sending in soldiers and blowing up buildings. And, you know, the the, the thing that's so interesting is that it's not so easy to take over any country anymore, especially one that has resolve and the will to resist. I mean, if it's a small country where the people are being liberated, it still can be difficult when you have a resistance. But when you're going into a country where every civilian becomes a soldier against you, even if you're the mighty mm -hmm. Russia, uh, you're taking on a long, terrible quagmire, a slog, if you will. And that appears pretty apparent. That appeared apparent even before this whole thing began. And um, I guess uh, Putin is going to um, learn the lesson the hard way, even though so many people will suffer as a result. They will. And of course, don't forget the deaths are really going to pile up right now because you see what he's trying to hit. They have pinpoint, absolute pinpoint precision weaponry. So they can just hit you wherever you are. They want you, they can get you, and they will just go down screaming. I mean, the idea of taking over another country, it doesn't work like that. This isn't 1700 and things like that. We're, we're very well-defined borders, and I think, ironically, you got a guy in Putin who genuinely believed that when he went in, that the people would love it, that, they would, that he was liberating them from Zelensky. I mean, it's amazing, but that's the way he thinks. Yeah. Also, he thinks that uh, the Russian people are behind him. I mean, oh, yeah. from what I understand, oh, yeah. he, you know, he, he feels it's his mission to restore the glory of Mother Russia. You know, he's going to make Russia great again. And uh, from what I understand, um, there are different points of view in Russia, including the fact that he's not a total dictator. He's surrounded by people with a lot of power in the government, uh, the, the oligarchs and, and others within the party, whatever that party is that rules Russia today, but that there have been demonstrations. And uh, Russia is not necessarily lined up behind him in terms of this oh, no. restoration of their power young, and their glory. Young people, as you always find out when it comes to any kind of demonstration and the like, the young people, there were over 5,000 allegedly have been arrested. Now, you might say, well, they're not going to keep in prison, and they won't. But in the way things work in Russia, you get a card, and you will have like a like a scarlet letter on that card, and you will have a lot of problems 
getting a job, getting a home, things like that. And yet they're risking it to just let the people know that the Russian people are not all unanimously in favor of Putin. Now, a lot of countries, you know, Germany especially, a very, you know, Germany is a very powerful country in Europe. Uh, there, there is military support going to the Ukrainians. But what about the sanctions? Do you think that this particular level of sanctions is going to have an, an impact on Russia and on Putin? Or is it just going to be so many words and nothing will come of it? No, I think it's the former. I, I do. Uh, for one thing, maybe I'm brainwashed, but I've watched so much TV about what's going on and listening to everybody talking. And the more I do it, the more I become, you know, since there are experts in the field, the more I become accepting of the fact that, you know, these sanctions are going to work. It's that it, the problem is they take a while to really hurt. And patience is not something that any country, for that matter, any individual in the U.S., is something to be proud of. We're not the most patient people, but I think it will affect. I mean, we get to the point where they can't go to the store and get anything. It reminds me of the old Soviet Union. Uh, Jan and I took a trip there many years ago when it was still the USSR. And the difference between that and when we went, uh, I guess, maybe a year and a half, two years ago, uh, and it was Russia, it, it's unbelievable. And the more it becomes Russia, the more people are not going to just go in lockstep. And they will re they'll really resent the idea that suddenly you have a Putin in power who is keeping them from the opportunity to get what they want. And now today you had uh, the oligarchs. You had three oligarchs who have turned against them, which is amazing if you think about it. Because mm. if he somehow survives, if, if Putin survives all of this, he wouldn't want to be one of those three guys. Again, we have no idea at this time how long this is going to be drawn out, whether it's going to be a short story or a long story. These tend to be long stories, and they tend to go in ways that people don't necessarily expect. Uh, on last week's program, I was quoting or, or you know, para paraphrasing Mike Tyson. Uh, of all people to give advice to uh, Vladimir Putin, Mike Tyson said something to the effect of, you can go into a boxing match, you can go into a fight with a game plan and think you have it all figured out. And the second you get punched in the mouth, that game plan goes out the window. And uh, yep. there, there, there's a degree of that going on. On the other hand, uh, at the time we're doing this, there's something like a 40-mile convoy of Russian military uh, equipment and trucks mo moving toward uh, the capital of Ukraine. And um, that's a terrifying thought. It's a terrifying thought. I, I mean, there's one of my first thoughts, and I hate to say it, but it is, I mean, this is war, is why don't you just take out some of these? Just take them out. Well, you can't really do that. You give it all kinds of reasons. But I still think if it was possible, if, if, if Russia is going full blast, they should too. And try and take these, take these tanks out. You've got so many of them that at this point, it would at least visually be a stimulation for the people in the Ukraine who are trying their best just continue to keep, keep their lives the way they are. The other thing is, I keep thinking, where do they where do they gas up? What, what, what happens? I mean, how much how much fuel do they have? How long can they last? And why are they stopping tw twenty miles from the uh, from? Ukraine itself. That's retired talk radio great Ron Owens of KGO San Francisco fame making a special appearance to talk about the Russia-Ukraine crisis. By the way, check out the successful podcast featuring Ron's wife and daughter titled Nobody Told Me at NobodyToldMeShow.com. Coming up next, a deep dive into the warped minds of internet sexual predators with Chris Hansen. You're plugged into the Michael Harrison rap.
Bernadette Duncan spent 26 years as a radio talk show producer. In her new book, Yappy Days, Behind the Scenes with Newsers, Schmoozers, Boozers, and Losers, she shares her adventures in the trenches of big-time talk radio during the changing backdrop of America's pre- and post-9-11 realities. This exciting story includes Bernadette's impressions of the quirky celebrity talk show hosts whom she served during her career. Larry King, Sally Jesse Raphael, Gil Gross, Tom Snyder, Lou Dobbs, Charles Osgood, and more. It's full of anecdotes about hundreds of high-profile guests from media, show business, and politics. Also quirky, ego-driven, and neurotic. Yappy Days, behind the scenes with newsers, schmoozers, boozers, and losers, an analytical look at the media, journalism, and the complex nature of ego. Get it now at Amazon.com. Continuing now with the Michael Harrison Wrap. Unfortunately, there's always something in the news about crime, both online and in the streets. One of the media's most prolific crime fighters is multi-Emmy award-winning reporter Chris Hansen, known to millions of fans and followers for his work spanning more than four decades, apprehending sexual predators on a number of groundbreaking shows and platforms, including Dateline NBC, Crime Watch Daily, and To Catch a Predator. He has a very successful podcast titled Predators I Have Caught with Chris Hansen. A lot of the parents did not realize in the past decade, two or three, that the internet is the street, that it's the street. You know, it's, oh, it's computers, it's technology and all that. And there is a whole slew of predators out there preying upon children. Now you've, this has been one of, one of the targets, one of the hearts, if you will, of, of your work. Um, what are your thoughts about the whole situation well, today? Don't talk to strangers. Right. That was good advice then, and it's good advice today. The problem is, Michael, that uh, the guy who's a stranger to your child online on a Wednesday is so good and so adept at grooming that they're not a stranger by the time Saturday night rolls around. And these kids oftentimes, uh, you know, show that vulnerability, and the predators know this. And imagine uh, this, you know, when we first did the predator investigations, we merely had decoys posing as kids in chat rooms on AOL and Yahoo. Well, today, there's been an explosion in the number of social media platforms used. And during the pandemic, more kids were online uh, more often than ever before. And the predators know this, and they know where to go. I mean, there's TikTok and Snapchat and, and uh, you know, the dating apps and, and Kick and Skip the Games, and, and all those are out there. And there's case after case after case on little children, you know, 12, 13, 14, getting targeted and groomed. And then it goes all the way into, you know, girls in college who think it's harmless to send a photo and be paid for it. And it turns out those photos are used in a lot of different ways and exploited over and over again. So the, the, the explosion in, in, in uh, illicit contacts between adults and children reported to the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children was up like 900% during the pandemic, as was the uh, reported trading of child pornography, which is you know, linked to this predatory uh, 
activity. So, so there's the pornographic side of it. There's just the psychological side of it, and then there's the actual physical side of it. Now, you talk right. about during during the pandemic, you know, it, it was a double-edged sword. The isolation caused more um, reliance on the internet to make friends and, and connections and engage in fantasies, etc. But um, it prevented people from getting together. Um, now that people are starting to get together again and kids are going out and, you know, the pandemic might, you know, hopefully coming, be coming toward an end. Are you concerned that uh, there's going to be a whole new wave of predator crimes now that they can get together more easily with their prey? Well, I, I think that's the possibility. Yeah, that's the concern. But also, you know, a lot of people get exploited just in video chats that are recorded or, mm. uh, you know, uh, things that are used in ways they were never intended. And so, yeah, there's a, there's a backlog of physical meetings, but they've been going on. Um, you know, and it's not just kids, Michael, it's adults. I mean, look at the Tinder swindler thing. I'm working on a case right now mm-hmm. where a guy was working Facebook and other social media platforms, and he didn't scam women out of as much money as the Tinder swindler did, but he did uh, assault physically and sexually upwards of 40 women that we know about. And these women got together, and they started sharing their stories on social media, and they figured, this guy's a bad guy. We need, to, we need to expose him. We need to make sure he's criminally prosecuted in an organized way. And they reached out to me on social media, and now it's going to become a documentary, both for television at some point and on the YouTube channel. So, you know, what you say about the democratization of social media is great as long as it's used responsibly. And that's a great example of how you can do it, how you can expose these people, predators of all types, and create a dialogue and a sense of awareness that didn't exist before. Because if you can get into the mind of a predator and hear the voice of a victim, you can better prevent other people from becoming victims. And that's been the the mantra of my reporting for, you know, decades. Based on your experience and wisdom in this arena, um, is there a profile that you have finally, you know, a composite personality that you've put together where you can smell one? That's a great question. And and I was just speaking at a human trafficking conference in Houston a couple weeks ago and, and met a husband and wife therapist team who is doing some incredible work in this area, and I'm going to have that. I was so impressed by it, I'm going to actually have them on the, um, on the podcast, Predators I've Caught with Chris Hansen. But in my experience, <clears throat> the, what they all have in common is typically they don't stand out of a crowd. Um, this most recent episode of the podcast that's out now highlights somebody who I had known, met casually, on the commuter train here on the East Coast. Oh, wow. And then he shows up, five, six years ago, in a predator investigation in Fairfield, Connecticut, looking to meet a 13-year-old boy. Now, you have no idea when you're meeting this guy, when you're chatting with him, when he's asking you if you can, you know, help find a speaker for his professional conference, the guy was in commercial real estate, <laughs> that he could possibly be involved in this activity. So they don't stand out of a crowd, but in terms of who these guys are, I think, and again, I'm not a therapist, I just play one on TV with these guys, but... <laughs> I think they break down into three different categories. There's the hardcore heavy hitter, right? Mm-hmm. The guy who would be preying on children for whatever reason, a childhood experience, trauma of their own. Maybe they're wired this way, but you can't stop them. With or without the Internet, they'd be doing this. They'd be the bad scoutmaster, the bad little league coach, the person who's hanging out at the food court at the mall, looking for opportunity, looking for a vulnerable victim. Then there is a younger group, 
And these guys are socially inept. They're drawn in by the Internet, and they figure if they can get somebody to chat with them who's younger, easier to date, and if they have a sexual relationship, well, at some point the age gap will narrow and it won't be as inappropriate, and they go for it. They jump on it. Those guys can, you know, be wrapped on the nose and given probation and some sort of monitoring and registration, and probably in many of those cases they'll never offend again if you get them early. Then there's this interesting group in the middle, the doctor, the lawyer, the teacher, you know, the, the uh, you know, 25 to 70-year-old who probably wouldn't be doing this but for the Internet. They have a predilection towards younger people, boys and girls, but they wouldn't do it without the, the access 24-7, the addictive nature and the anonymity. People say things online they wouldn't say face-to-face, and these guys get into these chats and these relationships, or they think relationships, and at some point they blur the line between fantasy and reality, and they're knocking on you know our door in a predator investigation. And we've seen it, you know, we just shot another one uh, a month or so ago uh, for the new series, and we're going back out there again soon. And, and all these years later, and, and some of these guys, many of these guys have seen the previous shows, they still show up. And one of the things I find fascinating is that the look on the face, the instant that the predator realizes he's been caught. Um, I get the impression that these people, even though they know how dangerous their activity is, you know, a guy's going to break into a, a, a convenience store with a gun. He knows he's running the risk of getting nabbed, right. of getting shot, of being arrested. These guys seem to operate um, without accepting there's an arrogance to it, although I don't know if that's the right word, the, the, the reality of how their lives are going to go totally down the drain <laughs> because they live this life. They're a dentist or a doctor, a lawyer. They, they, they Everything about them is normal. They have this dark side to them. And then when suddenly, boom, the lights are on them, you've been caught. That realization. Do you know that moment I'm talking about? When it's like the deer. Oh, yeah. I've, I've watched it hundreds of times. The deer in the headlights, you know? And it's just, oh, my God, this has really happened. I never thought I'd get caught. And I hear from them, I knew it. I knew this was, you know, a, a police investigation. I knew it was Chris Hansen. And even when I'm not involved, mm. even when the guy doesn't show up, and I, I suppose this is good news because maybe we've had some deterrent effect. You see in the chats, you know, I'm not going. It could be sheriff so and so, or FBI agent so and so, or it could be Chris Hansen working with law enforcement. You know, right? Not the deterrent for the right reason, but a deterrent nevertheless. But honestly, Michael, I thought we would do one or two investigations, and that would be it. It was never intended to be a standalone, separate series of investigations. It was intended in the beginning, when I pitched it, to be a segment on Dateline. And we did it once the first time 18 years ago, this month or last month in Long Island. And I thought, well, maybe we'll do it again, and maybe one more time, and and nobody's going to show up. Who would possibly show up after all this publicity? And yet, here we are. 18 years later, and guys are still showing up. What is your thought about the spike in crime, just in general, street crime, violence, guns, shoplifting, all that stuff that's going on yeah. today well, I, as a I citizen. Some of it's a result of, you know, the pandemic and what we've seen. Some of it's a result of, you know, lack of uh, aggressive law enforcement. It's a, and it's a fine line. You know, I, I live in New York City, but we also have a home in Michigan, so I'm back and forth all the time. So I see it, you know, 
from the ground level in the subways here, and I see it from a you know more suburban view, but looking at a at an inner city of Detroit. So, in in the case of New York, I think that there was a, a hands off attitude by the past administration, uh, one that's changing now with Eric Adams in office, and I think the police are going to be allowed to do their job. That doesn't mean that they can improperly stereotype or target individuals who are doing nothing wrong. It doesn't mean that, you know, they can stop and frisk anybody for no reason just to harass them. But it does mean that we're not going to accept a certain level of behavior on the subways. And and, and low-level crimes that are committed at, at 4 or 5 in the afternoon or evening will turn into felonies at 11 or 12 at night. And for years, they enforced those low-level offenses because it eliminated the more violent, vicious crime later. And if you think about this, Michael, um, one out of seven turnstile jumpers in the subway system in New York has a warrant for their arrest. One out of seven. And one out of 20 is carrying a weapon, a gun or a knife, box cut or something like that. So if you take off the turnstile jumpers, or you at least check them out when that is happening, and you don't allow, you know, homeless people to go unchecked in the subway. Now, again, homeless people need help, right? They need counseling. They need assistance to get out of their environment. But if left to do whatever people want, you will end up with a certain segment of that population who is mentally ill, who will do things like the things we've seen here in New York, where an innocent woman standing on the subway platform in Times Square, a woman who ironically was very active in raising money and helping the homeless, was pushed into the track to her death Mm. by a homeless man who was suffering from delusions. So Eric Adams has has clamped down on that, and there's a special police unit now that goes through the subways and and assists the homeless people and checks them out and... and, and, uh, um, gets them off the streets. And so I'm optimistic that we're going to see the, the tide turning. And unfortunately, what happened in many cities, you know, during the protests after George Floyd, which is horrible what happened to George Floyd, it's horrible policing, it's, it's murder, and most law enforcement officers will tell you the same thing. Um, there was a backlash against law enforcement. And now we're finding that middle ground again. Water seeks its own level. And I think more rational plans are being put in place to make sure the police officers on the streets are responsible, but to also not allow, you know, criminals to roam freely. And it takes a certain sense of community policing. I mean, I mean, think about this. If, if in the case of George Floyd, for instance, that police officer who murdered him by putting his knee on his neck had interacted with him in the store earlier, that's George, what's going on? Well, I'm, you know, this, that, or I'm coming down for this or that. And then he goes, what do you need? A couple of cigarettes? Great. If you bought him a pack of cigarettes, not that that's the job of the police, but if he had, he would have a friend in the streets for life, right? Mm-hmm. Somebody who would say, okay, I can trust that cop. I can tell him what's going on. Who probably would assist him if he needed information in that community about some wrongdoing. Interesting. But he didn't do that. He lost his temper and he threw George Floyd to the ground and, and murdered him because he was ticked off that day. Mm. The world changed yeah. because people were not going to put up with that. The image of that cop oh. 
it, it, it was it was a modern day lynching, yeah. a murder. Yeah. And again, I'm not saying that every cop's got to buy everybody who's down there like a pack of cigarettes. But what if that's the way it went down? Mm-hmm. What if it was the, the cop on the street who had some common sense, which many of them yeah. do? Smarter policing, and, smarter. And uh, saw, it's community policing. Yeah, yeah. Subtle, little subtle things like that could absolutely make a difference. It would change. It would change the, the the last year. You're plugged into the Michael Harrison rap. This report is brought to you by Genesis 2 Project, D2P. Recently, the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, the ODNI, released a preliminary report on possible threats posed by UFOs, now known as Unidentified Aerial Phenomena, UAP, and the progress the Department of Defense, UAP Task Force, has made in understanding any threats. Dr. J.C. Van Velkenberg is a former Los Alamos National Lab biophysicist who has been working with G2P to bring scientifically sound UAP data to the public. G2P has released the first scientifically authenticated documentation of UAPs, including images captured with infrared technology. Primo Forensics performed the digital forensic analysis. In tandem with the ODNI report, these data support the development of relevant processes, policies, technologies, and training for the U.S. military and government personnel upon encountering UAP. Visit Genesis2Project.com. Continuing now with the Michael Harrison Wrap as we discuss the hottest topics of the past week in the national conversation. President Biden's State of the Union address was one of the big buzzes on American news talk shows this past week. Joining us now to talk about it is the popular morning host at our Atlantic City, New Jersey affiliate, WPG, Talker's Heavy 100 member, Harry Hurley. So, Harry, what'd you think of the State of the Union address? I felt that this was an opportunity for President Biden to reset his presidency by any measure, if you're a Republican, Democrat, independent, unaffiliated alike, it's been a rough 13, 14 months. I mean, inflation is now called runaway, and that's a technical term. It's not a pejorative. Uh, Things are tough uh, all the way around. The, The mood in America is dour. And what can happen? It happened for President Bush. President Bush, too, meaning George W. Bush, was going to be the education president. And then September 11, 2001, happened early in his presidency, and he became a wartime president. Now, we're not at war, but we are at the doorstep. Uh, so I thought it was an opportunity for President Biden to reset his presidency, a very consequential speech, as most of them are not, this was. Do you think he took the opportunity, or do you think he fell short? Well, I want to say that he swung and missed, but there were good moments. I I thought that he was strong in the beginning when he was talking about Ukraine. I thought it was a powerful moment when he had moments in the, the U.S. Capitol building and everybody clapped in unison. Uh, I thought it was it was a good sign 
that I only saw one person, and it looked like a staff person off to the side of the dais with a black face mask on. Nobody was wearing face masks. They did have social distancing, it appeared. Uh, I think I'm going to say he took a swing. He he did more than foul the ball off. I'm not sure if he got to first base on it, but he made some progress with the beginning of that speech. Did you find anything in it where it was a, a, a disaster or a failure? I mean, you may not agree with all the policy. Obviously, you're, you are a conservative and you do support the Republicans by and large, not, not blindly and not on every single count. But um, uh, aside from that, do you think that uh, there's a moment that was a, particular, a particularly difficult one for him? Well, I thought it was difficult. I thought he was a bit pushing water uphill when he was trying to make like record-setting statements. I mean, sure, it's the most amount of jobs created in one year because we're coming off of the worst deadly pandemic since 1918. So I thought that was intellectually dishonest, and nobody believes it. So I don't believe in saying things. I mean, the speechwriter was adequate, not great. Uh, Biden read it okay, not great. Whenever he ad-libs, he makes mistakes. He was saying Iranians, Uraniums. Mm. I mean, it was, it was, there were some, some, sort of sad moments that that bolster that perception that the president is not cognitively uh, acceptable in the role. There were good moments, though. I thought he was the strongest on Ukraine, and I think it's easier to be strong in that area because he doesn't have as much direct involvement with um, getting credit for either hurting the economy with policies. I thought one of the, um, the, the bad parts of the speech we were energy independent and a net oil exporter 13 months ago. We now purchase 675,000 barrels of oil a day from Russia. How can we do that, Michael, in this environment? We have to be in an environment where not we don't want to hurt the Russian people, who are mostly innocents, but we can't be bolstering him up. I mean, the ruble is down to the value of a penny on the dollar. Uh, they cannot travel in airspace in many, many places in the world. The European Union is united. I thought that the um, German Chancellor Olaf Schmidt was the strongest of them all when very early on he knocked out the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. Uh, uh, Putin was counting on that and counting on that revenue. He was going to double the energy supply that he would have been providing to Europe. And now the Nord Stream 2 pipeline filed for bankruptcy protection. Are you uh, nervous about this thing escalating into a, a nuclear confrontation between NATO and Russia? I'm very concerned. And I'll tell you why, Michael. When Russia releases a photo and the table's about 50 feet long and the two generals are 50 feet away from the Russian president, that tells me he trusts no one at the moment. People should read into that photo very dire potential consequences. Where I think we will remain to be fine, but this will not speak well for how things might end in Ukraine, as long as Putin does not extend and touch a NATO nation, because Article 5, uh, if one is attacked, all are attacked, and Michael, by definition, that would be World War Three. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, it, and, and the U.S. would wind up in it, and it would be Hitler and Germany and Poland and France all over again. Um, there's a tremendous parallel here, or at least that's that's what it appears like to me, and you hear people saying it. Oh, Do you see no that? And, and could I make another parallel? Sure. This is eerily similar to the 1970s. Jimmy Carter, the economy. Jimmy Carter, runaway inflation. Jimmy Carter, oil issues. The Soviet Union, very provocative, very aggressive. 
I, I am struck by how past his prologue and history is almost repeating itself right now. Well, we all want to be on the right side of history. I, I, I find that to be something as I get older and more seasoned in terms of uh, this business of opinions that we're in. Uh, you know, you, you, you think about, okay, what's the thing to say right now? What, what, what opinion should you draw? You know, we create our opinions. We build them. We research. We think. We, we have gut feelings. And yeah. uh, with something big like this, you don't want to, you know – push well, for something yeah. and have we, it turn and, and out Michael, to be... Michael, we also want them to age well. For well, example, that's the point. how has President Obama's... I, I look at the things you say 10 years ago, uh, and they happen either uh, after the fact or your your comments age well because you're extremely thoughtful and analytical and you, you think before you speak. President Obama, to get a cheap talking point in, when then-candidate Mitt Romney said that Russia is our biggest geopolitical threat, and then-President Obama, just for a cheap political point, because I think he knew better, but instead he got the applause line and the media bought in with him and mocked Romney uh, when Obama said that that the 1980s are calling and they want their foreign policy back. Uh, Romney has been vindicated 10 years later. What about now Donald Trump? being perceived, and, and much because he says these things, and we just had CPAC last weekend, and he, he spoke rather loosely. Does it disturb you that um, the most recent conservative president, a Republican president, who still is considered the leader of the Republican Party and a key figure in the conservative movement, uh, and he's being followed by a number of people in the conservative media, are coming across as being... S- sympathetic, for lack of a better word, to uh, Vladimir Putin. What's your thought about that? I didn't like it, and I support my pre- my former president, I, he, who I think your listeners know is my former boss. He hired me. Uh, he is my friend. That doesn't change. I didn't like the first comment, but I think in fairness, as time has gone on, uh, you haven't heard anybody say sticking up for Putin at this point with what he's done. He, he, I, I saw a word of a six-year-old child killed by, by a Putin blast. He was outside of a cancer hospital. He's bombing civilian targets. He's a monster. Putin goes down as one of the most heinous monsters in the history of the world. I don't hear anybody defending him. When President Biden was weak out of the blocks, and I think if we're being fair, he was very weak at the beginning. Uh, he has picked up some steam. I think some of these sanctions are painful. I believe that Putin might be pushed out. I mean, these oligarchs that are having their New York penthouses and their yachts and, and their bank accounts taken from them, uh, Putin's in trouble right now. Early on, what you said is accurate, and it's not defendable, and I will not defend it uh, on the Michael Harrison rap. But nobody's saying that now. That's Harry Hurley, heard mornings on our great affiliate in Atlantic City, New Jersey, WPG, in addition to being featured across the nation regularly on Fox News Radio. You're plugged into the Michael Harrison rap. We have time now for one more. Spring is right around the corner, and baseball is in the news, but not for the right reasons. Joining us is our sports correspondent, a legendary sports talker heard now for decades on WFAN in New York, Richard Neer. What's going on with baseball? Well, right now, nothing. (laughs) There is no baseball. Normally, we'd be in spring training in the Grapefruit League and, you know, out in Arizona. And it's not happening, the Cactus League, Arizona League. And uh, 
Baseball is uh, under the oh, four-month lockout that the owners imposed at the beginning of December, hoping that it would lead to a new collective bargaining agreement by putting a deadline on things, and it didn't work. What is a lockout versus a strike? We'll, we'll, we'll explain. Well, lockout is basically when owners or the employers say you cannot come to work without a contract. A strike is where the contract expires and the workers walk off. Of course, major league owners could at any time say, okay, the lockout is out. You can come in, come to work, and we'll work under the old agreement. But uh, they do not want to do that. And with the lockout, nobody gets paid, right? Well, that's under debate at this point. The owners are maintaining that if the games aren't played and the games are going to be canceled as opposed to postponed, the players will not be paid for those games. The players are thinking, oh, it's a big bluff. And once this is settled, those games will be made up with double headers or some such thing. And we'll eventually get our money and our service time. That's the other issue. So that uh, remains to be seen whether the owners are bluffing on that or they're telling the truth. How are these poor players going to pay their rent and, and put food on the table in the interim? Well, you'd be surprised. I mean, a lot of them, are, there is a slush fund. They anticipated that this might happen. So from what I understand, the players are being given uh, something along the lines of $15,000 a month to struggle by <laughs> while they wait to get their regular salaries. And of course, uh, you know, players have made a lot of money over the years and a lot of them shouldn't really need any I, supplemental I, I, I can I kind of meant it sarcastically. <laughs> yeah. Although, while you were talking, I'm saying to myself, there are other people, though, who do make an average living from the baseball business, and they are hurt by this. Well, these are the people I feel bad for. The ushers, the vendors, the concessionaires, the parking attendants, all the... Uh, you know, this air quotes, little people who support the game, whose uh, jobs are really necessary to get the thing going, to keep it going. Uh, but those people are out of work. And uh, most cases, they're not being paid. I think a few organizations have said uh, that they're going to try to help out those people. But for the most part, they're out, out of luck. Now, now, what are the key issues that are what are the points of contention? Well, the main thing is that there is no salary cap in baseball. However, there is a luxury tax threshold, which means if a team spends more than, at this point, $210 million on payroll, they will have to pay a tax, and that money will go to some of the lesser teams. The players would like to see that raised to $238 million, and escalate through the five years of the contract. The owners are saying 220 was their last offer, and uh, the highest it would go would be about 230. So they're not really all that far apart on that, and there seems to be a deal to be made on that. The other thing is, you know, there's always arbitration and service time, minimum wage, which is something that uh, the players wanted increased. The owners have offered uh, to go up from 575 to 700. Players are stuck at uh, 725, so they're they're not all that far apart there. But there is a fund that they want to give to the younger players who excel, sort of a bonus fund. <laughs> and uh, last we heard, the players were at 115 million, and the owners were at about 30. So there is a big gap there. Do you have a gut feeling, personally, as a as a commentator and a fan of the sport, as to which side is being um, you know, hard-headed, or is it both? 
Well, it's both. I'm, the media generally seems to have taken the player's side in this, mm-hmm. and I, I get that. But on the other hand, you know, if you just look at the minimum wage, going from 575000 to 700000 is a pretty big step. That is a, a pretty large increase. And don't forget that baseball in, in 2020 did not have any fans in the seats. And last year they started out with very few fans and eventually they opened up the stadium. So the owners have struggled a bit, but now with the advent of gambling, they are making more and more money and the players want a chunk. That's Richard Neer of Sports Talk Radio WFAN in New York. And that about does it for this latest installment of the Michael Harrison Wrap, an overview of the national conversation. Looking back at the week of Monday, February 28th through Friday, March 4th, 2022. Looking ahead, I'm sure we'll have plenty to talk about next week, including the ever-lurking unknown factor, that unanticipated surprise story that could take the national conversation spinning off in a totally unexpected direction. We sure do live in interesting times. I can be reached via email at michaelatalkers.com. My podcast, The Michael Harrison Interview, can be heard at mhinterview.com. And if you want to stay in touch with the inner workings of the talk media industry, please visit talkers.com. The Michael Harrison Wrap. Our producer is Matthew B. Harrison. Thank you for listening. The Michael Harrison Rap is a production of Good Phone Communications presented in association with Talk Media Network and Talkers Magazine. Copyright 2022. All rights reserved.